Thanks, guys. Why don't you bust out a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? And uh, if it's in your pew there, it's at 1773 or 4, I think. And um, I'm just going to warn you, we were supposed to have a guest speaker today, Michael Beresford, who gonna, was going to do a thing this afternoon with us, which is canceled, by the way, if you don't know that. Um, and so I didn't this week, and then I found out on Saturday at 4 a.m. that um, I was going to probably be preaching, and my wife is out of town. She was at a casino last night in Atlantic City, but it was her— <laughs> Yeah, I actually texted her. I was like, are you still only married to me this morning? And she was like, yes. So it was her sister's, um, was her sister's bachelorette party and, uh, and a bridal shower and all that, and she couldn't—where they were going couldn't be helped, apparently. So that was fun. So, I, so anyway, I didn't have my wife home to be like, baby, I got to bury myself in this for a day. And um, so this is going to be fun. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. And it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, it will receive his, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks that he is wise by the standards of this, wor this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world, of this world, is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are, fu are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So then, Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. 
Now it is required that those who have been given a trust prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, it's really easy to read that passage and think that this passage is about Christian leadership because the whole passage is about Christian leadership. But that's not really what the passage is about. The whole first section of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 is about unity and about the fact that this unity is brought about by a misunderstanding of the gospel and the presence of human pride. And um, so when he starts this passage, he doesn't say, now brothers, let me teach you about Christian leadership, does he? He says, brothers, I can't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as mere infants. What he's saying is, if you, if, you, if you read between the lines, it's very clear that the Corinthians see themselves as wise, spiritually, as spiritual people. They see themselves as people who are spiritually doing pretty well and that they might even be more spiritually mature than Paul, which is one of the reasons there's conflict between Paul and them because they think they may have outgrown him because they have better pastors now like Apollos and people like that. And what Paul actually says to them is not, well, maybe, or he basically says, listen, when I left you, you were still sucking on a spiritual bottle and nothing's changed. And the kind of spirituality that you're selling is the unspiritual kind. It's not what we mean by spirituality, whatever it is. And whatever wisdom it is that you think you have, however you've styled yourself as a philosopher, you really haven't even answered the first and most basic, most elementary question about philosophy, what something is, which is a bit of a shot to Greek culture because that's mainly what Socrates and Plato were interested in, the fundamental nature of things. And the, the philosophical argument in this passage is, one of the biggest blunders they've made is they don't even know what a leader is. So how can they know who to follow? But the main and critical point here, though, is how did they, how did they get this way? Why is it that this much later, I mean, this is years. This is two, three, four, five years later. They're still spiritual babies. And it's very clear that the answer to that is Pride. They're proud, so they can't learn. And it's really, under, I think it's really important for us to understand that pride inhibits growth and leads to perpetual immaturity. One of the things that leads to constant and total Christian and personal immaturity is the presence of pride. That is, and, and here's why that is, because we tend to think that Christian maturity has to do with behavioral transformation. That's not true. That's not how it happens. Christian transformation happens when our, our understanding, our sight of reality becomes more and more clear and true. And the more clearly we see who God really is in Christ and in the cross and through the Spirit, the more we have these, oh, 
and we realize we've been handling reality in a fundamentally false way. And we go, well, I can't do that. And so we take a step to say, oh, I've got to do this instead because that's what reality is. Now, the reason why that's, it's important to see personal transformation, what we call sanctification, that way is because if you don't see that, you will not realize that pride is the first and foremost thing we have to deal with every day, all the time. The parameters and boundaries of the spiritual growth possible in your life are dictated by the presence of humility and the absence of pride. If pride is present, you cannot grow. And I don't mean if any pride is present. What I mean is if pride has its hold, if pride— see, because—and here's, here's why this is important. Because if growth comes from an ever clearer sight of what's real, pride distorts that. It puts you at the center, not God, and it twists and it turns the lens and changes the way we see everything. The more pride that is present, the more we cannot see reality the way it is. And what is that? That makes it so that we cannot grow. Pride creates a distortion that will always make our spirituality unspiritual. It will always make us worldly instead of godly, and it will always make us the other thing. Oh, Spirit, con, perpetual spiritual infants rather than people who are learning how to eat some steak. Um, for example, I just want to show you that family photo. Right? So, no awes. I mean, right? What, what's wrong with you people? No, aw, or whoa, or right? You don't know how to react, right? There's no emotional response. There's no intellectual response. There's no action response. You didn't do anything. You didn't think. You didn't feel anything. Why? You have no idea what's in the picture. No idea what's in the picture. Okay. So now, looks like there might be a fish, right? Right? There's Rachel. My, that's my middle kid with a Spanish—that's a big Spanish mackerel. Um, that we cut a couple, couple years ago. So that's the picture, right? And when you see that, you can go, oh, look at that, that's Rachel. Or, wow, that's a kind of a big fish for that little girl. You know, and, and you ha- there's, there's an emotional response, there's a mental response, there's an actional response. Why? Because you saw it clearly. And when it was blurred, and when it was twisted, and when it was distorted, you couldn't see it. And see, that's what the gospel's all about. The lens turn that clarifies reality into crystal crystal clarity is the cross, Paul is saying. It's not your wisdom, and it's not your philosophy, and it's not your spirituality. It's the cross. And therefore, the cross has to define your spirituality, the cross has to define your wisdom, and the cross has to define your philosophy. Otherwise, you just get more distortion. And there may be differences in the amount of distortion you're dealing with, but where pride is present, distortion is present, and growth is inhibited. Period. And that's what this passage is all about. It's just applied now in chapter three to leadership, right? In chapter one, it was applied to wisdom. In chapter two, it was applied to speech and rhetoric and how people talk. And in chapter three, it goes even a little deeper, not just how leaders talk and not just how leaders act in certain ways, but what a leader actually is. And so what I want to do for the next several minutes here is— um, talk about leadership, Christian leadership, in relationship to this chapter, but in reference to this claim, 
pride distorts our understanding of reality and doesn't just lessen what we can see, it actually reverses what we see. So good is bad and bad is good and right is wrong and wrong is right and honor, honorable is dishonorable and dishonorable is honorable and courageous looks like cowardice and cowardice looks like courage and everything gets flipped around and we think we're making progress. You're not making progress. And see, there's lots of Christians who believe, who really devoutly believe that there's lots of deadly sins and one of them's pride and there's all these other ones and you can make progress in all these other ones and you know, we can keep a little pride. It's not, a little pride's good for you. It's good for a man to have a little pride, right? Oh, Okay, if what you mean by is doing something well, meaning good craftsmanship, fine. But if pride means just making sure you're treated with importance and so on and not having too much humility and stuff, no, it's not. It, it's, it's, and it's not good for anybody because you can't make progress in other things because if pride dictates, if pride and humility dictate the clarity by, why, by which you see God in reality, then your growth in every area, whether it's greed and generosity, lust and purity, industry and sloth, whatever. All of those are dictated by how clearly you see the cross, how clearly you see God, how clearly you see reality through his revelation, his mind, his teaching. And pride distorts all of that. So pride isn't just one of the deadly sins, and humility, one of the things we should sort of acquire when we get around to it. And listen, look, I know it's hard for some of you to hear this from me, okay? Can we just stipulate that? Objection stipulated. I realize that I did not come off as the humblest person in the world, partly because of my manner and partly because I'm not the humblest person in the world. And we're all going to apply this sermon to our lives and this, these truths are our lives, hopefully, okay? And you need to pray for me. That's your job. It's your job to pray for me, and this probably is the first thing you ought to pray for me. Now, so that's stipulated, okay? So I don't think we make any progress. Now, here's—now we got to look at how Paul specifically relates this to leadership here, okay? So let's do that. And the first thing that he does, this is pre-point one, first point, that um, he, okay, if, if you're in philosophy and you think of yourselves as a, as a philosopher, and this is helpful, I think, for Madisonians because we tend to think of ourselves as kind of intellectual, educated, nuanced sort of people. And he basically, oh, you think you're a philosopher? Okay, that's, that's pretty sweet. Okay, let me, let me just ask you this. Um, what is, what is the, the natural identity, philosophically, of a Christian leader? And what he's arguing is, to these people, is you don't have a clue. You style yourself a philosopher, you don't know the first philosophical point about what these people are, and so your whole life is turned in a totally different direction because it's distorted because of pride. Right? I mean, that's what the verse— says in verse 5. He, he says, I, you guys, you, you're not mature. You're just acting like mere men. You're full of worldliness. What is worldliness? Worldliness is the opposite of spirituality. It's the opposite of believing the gospel. Worldliness is when the world is defined of itself from itself rather than in relationship to God and his revelation of Christ crucified. It's the other way of looking at things where we're at the center and the world is at the center rather than Christ being at the center. He's like, you're full of—you say you're a Christian. You're full of worldliness. Now, why is that? Because— you act like mere men. Why? Because look at how you treat leaders. What, and then he goes, think about it. You, what is a leader? What, what, what are they at root? Well, they're just a servant, right? And whatever they're doing, they got assigned that task. I mean, they're not even like an important servant that tells other servants what to do. I mean, they're the servant that like gets a to-do list from the boss, and they have to like do menial tasks and check them off. 
Christian leaders are at the bottom of the interesting barrel. But yet, you treat them like they're the top of the professorial and political class. Why? Not because you think that of them. It's not out of respect. It's out of self-importance. You want to be associated with them. Right? Now, and just think about, that's not just Christian leaders. Half of us don't feel that way about Christian leaders. But we feel that way about a lot of other things. Where we want to be associated, we take some of our meaning and identity from the thing, and the reality is, is that if Jesus came along and asked us, what is that thing? What, in terms of philosophical identity, not what do you take from it, but what is it? We'd end up a little embarrassed, right? What is it? It's a bunch of guys running around throwing a ball that we spend billions of dollars on. It's wandering around this huge edifice, spending money on things I don't need that I should be saving, right? It's, it's something that drives me from point A to point B, but it's a lot more comfortable, this version of it. Right? It's a thing I buy, and I like that name that's emblazoned on it. It's, it's this professor who I want to get in with, who is the top of their, the, the smartest person in their field, which of course every school says that about their top professor in every department. They're the best in the world at blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> oh, I always think that's funny. It's just, but we, but we want, we have this drive to have these associations, but if Jesus came along and said, what is that thing? We'd go, oh. If we saw it with the clarity of its true identity in Christ, yeah, okay, so we've got, so, okay, so Apollos is a great speaker, that's fantastic, and he's probably got great tan and whatever, and he, but Paul's like, oh, but what is he? He's just, all he is is he's a, he's a field hand, that's all he is. That's all I am. Just field hand. Why do you get excited about it? There's nothing to get excited about. So, let's look at number one. What is a Christian leader? And what this passage basically says is a leader is a servant, a mason, and a nothing. That's the picture here. Now, let me ask you something. Do you believe that we as a culture are good at picking leaders? Now, I'm not talking about the other political party that you don't like, okay? I'm just talking about, as a people, when we choose people to have leadership or any kind of authority or influence in our life, when we choose the people we're going to turn to when we need help, and we're hoping that they're going to be stronger than us, are we good at picking leaders, or are we a bunch of loser magnets, basically? We are, listen, we are not a culture that is good at knowing who to trust, and we, there was a new study that came out in one of the British universities this, this last week that, that measured general trustworthiness and said it has gone down measurably like 15% in 10 years in Britain. And I don't think we're much behind that. We, so we are becoming a culture much less trustworthy in basic things and also much weaker at discerning who we can trust. That just sounds like a lot of pain to me. But Christians ought to know, we ought to be really good at this. We've been given a lot of resources in Scripture and in the Gospel for being able to smell out who we really can turn to and who we can't, who we should be able to trust and who we shouldn't be able to trust. And one of the biggest ones is whether or not we can smell out humility and whether we can't, and whether or not we, a leader knows what they are and whether they don't. 
um, one of the things, the elders at this church, we've been spending a lot of time talking about what we want the leadership of this church to be like, how to find the people we're looking for. I've, you know, I've been through a couple of evaluations now, which are so much fun. And um, we've talked about, like, we're, we're going to have elder elections, and you're, if you're a member, you're going to vote on this. I mean, we, listen, listen to me. High Point is a congregational church. That is, we are a church we select our own leaders, I'm, I'm a pastor here because this congregation voted me into the pastorate. You could get together next week and vote me out of it. Now, that may sound like you've got a lot of great power, and that's fantastic, but you get both edges of the knife of, dem- of democracy. You get the freedom, but you also have the enormous responsibility of picking the right leader. And we're hoping we're putting together the budget for this next year that, that you're going to hear about in May. And one of the things we are hoping to include is another pastor. So we may very well be going through that selection process really soon, and you better know what you're looking for, because if you're a voting member or become a voting member by the time we find that person, it's your job to vote well. And whether or not this church survives 100 years or 10 years is going to have an enormous amount on whether or not we trust the right people. And whether or not you think that's interesting in relationship to the church, the fact is, is that you and I are constantly picking leaders, right? You know, picking a spouse, choosing where you're going to work. When you, when you get offered a job, there are multiple questions to answer. One is, do I want this job? Two is, can I trust the person I'm going to be working for? When you're in an interview, you better be smelling out whether or not the person interviewing you is worth trusting. Usually we're just trying to get the job. That's the wrong thing to do. There are a lot of bosses out there that will just do it. I mean, you're just cannon fodder to them. And that's true of our politicians. It's true of our public servants. It's true of our civic servants. It's true, of, it's true very broadly. And you cannot do a good job picking leaders until you know what a leader is. If pride is present and we're spiritual dwarfs and we don't know what a leader is really, We will not, we cannot pick good ones, and we will suffer the consequence of having bad shepherds. Listen, friends, there are a lot of people who like the idea of leadership and want to be in it, and most of them you need to run from as fast as you can. People get into leadership for all the wrong reasons. I would would suggest to you, okay, this might be an overstatement, I would suggest to you more than half of people that are in Christian ministry have no business being in Christian ministry. They're in it for all the wrong reasons. They really think the congregation is going to be really nice to them and they're going to be an important person in this really protected community or whatever. Um, or they're never going to be fired because churches don't fire people, which is crazy. And it's just, that's just, the, it's just reality. That's what people think. And they get in and they didn't have, a, their, you know, their mom didn't hug them enough and they want your adulation. And Listen, there are people getting this for all kinds of reasons. They're sexual predators. If you, listen, if we cannot smell out good leaders and people who are not good leaders, we are in a load of trouble. A load of trouble. And we can't do it well until we know what we're looking for, until we know what a leader is. And if we don't think a leader is a mason and a field hand and a nothing first in terms of what they are, and if we don't know to look for whether or not that leader knows what he is, you can't just be like, well, I know what a leader should be. You've got to find out, does this person who wants to lead me, do they know that's what they are? Do they act and talk like and seem to feel deep inside that, that what they really are is just, they're just a mason. They're just cutting stone and putting it where it goes and just trying to help. 
Do they know that if people come in droves to their church, that it is not because they dug a trench stylishly, but because seeds grow, and that's amazing. And the gospel has power, and the Spirit does work. I didn't make it rain. Do they know that really? And a lot of people know how to make all the right noises. Let me show you this one passage here. Listen to these verses again. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God, you are God's field, God's building. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you can even try to distinguish between Christian leaders, but if the Christian leaders have any sense, they'll be like, what are you talking about? He dug a trench there. I got dug a trench here. We both threw seeds in it. Like, the issue is not how stylishly did he do it. The issue is how many people can we get in the field? That's the issue. And, and people who aren't incompetent, people who don't think that you trim tomatoes by cutting them off at the bottom. You know, you don't want those people. Um, and so right in this passage you get a leader is nothing, a leader is a field hand, and a leader is a mason. I don't know if any of you, it's, it's becoming the, the um, time for gardening. I don't know if any of you are gardeners, but I'm trying to embrace Wisconsin life, and since I can't spearfish grouper in 100 feet of water, apparently growing tomatoes is supposed to have to do. And so— I'm trying to be a gardener because you can actually do that hobby because it's right there in the yard, which is kind of nice. Um, and so I had a really tough time with germination this year. I put all these seeds in there, no, and they just don't, they won't, they won't sprout. And I feel so helpless because I cannot make them grow. And you can listen, you can ask my four and a half year old Jude what our job is, right? And, and he'll tell you, he'll be like, you need seeds, you need dirt, you need water, you need warmth. That's what you need. And, they, and that's it, basically. Until they grow, they need some light. And he can tell you, but listen, I can tell you, but I cannot make cotton-picking things grow. I can't make them grow. Because, um, the, but here's the, here's the thing about that. There's a difference between gardeners, no question. No question about that. But no matter how good some master gardener that buys all their stuff and dry root and blah, 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 is— They'll save their bulbs for a blow. I don't care. It does not matter how, the, how good they are. It is the plants that are still the amazing part. It is still that tiny, like, eighth of a gram tomato seed that no matter how big a cage you try to build for that stinking thing, it still falls over on the rest of your garden. It's so tall. That's amazing. And that doesn't have all that much to do with the gardener. You just, if you just don't kill the thing and give it some water, it, that just happens. And that's amazing. And that's all there is to it. And it's very important that leaders know that, and it's very important that you know that your leaders know it. And that's not just true in Christian ministry. That's true everywhere. That's true of picking a husband. That's true of whether you can trust your boss. That's true of a politician. That's true of all of that. If they don't realize their littleness, you're in a, you're in a lot of trouble. And there's a level at which you can't trust them because ultimately they're at the center because they think they make stuff grow. And if they're that crazy, 
What will they not do? I mean, who knows? I mean, somebody that deluded, who, what, you know, it's like me thinking, like, High Point Church, you know, you know High Point Church, since I've gotten here, has gotten from about, gone from about 325 to about 500. It's only been two years. That's really good church growth. All I do is talk up here. That's all I do. There's, there's 10 or 50 people back in children's right now. There's a, a board of 13 elders that have another job who do all, are, they're all in charge of them, at least one ministry. I mean, like, you go through why this church is growing. You, you know, I'm making, yeah, I'm making a contribution. I'm digging my trench. I'm putting seeds in it. We're covering it up. We're watering. That's it. I mean, but listen, listen, it's very easy to say, well, I wasn't here before and things weren't growing, and now I'm here and they are. That's not hard logic, is it? It's crazy. I mean, I dare hardly say it out loud, but it's crazy. But it, it's, it's, isn't it, doesn't it seem reasonable? It's perfectly reasonable if I'm thinking about me. Perfectly reasonable. Yeah, well, that's, that's worldly logic. And the reason why people believe in worldly logic is because it's reasonable. Unless there is a deep-seated sense of humility that comes from the cross so that they see the world totally differently and they realize they're just farmhands, they're just masons. And that's all you are. And that's all I am. One of the funny things about the later passage is what pastors get compared to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What do you think, what animal do you think um, represents a pastor? There's the social animals. Some of us are kind of like gorillas. Um, or wolves. There's a lot of wolves in the ministry, that's true. Um, I, like the, I like the sheep dog. You know, you're not really the shepherd, but you know, you're helping with the sheep kind of thing. That's actually not in the Bible. They didn't have sheepdogs in Israel at the time, so. Or, you know, they're like the wise, like looking over everything with the wisdom, right? I'm smart, right? I'm part of the professorial class. You should respect me because I'm intelligent, even though most of the culture thinks I'm a religious huckster, right? There's that. Or like the lion. That's a little, lion's a little self-congratulatory, right? Yeah, some people would say that. You know, parrot. I got the sermon offline, right? <laughs> burp, burp, burp. Right? Some would go with that one, a worm. And, but you know what it is? It's an ox. That's what it, the passage says in 1 Corinthians 9 to 10. For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. That's in Deuteronomy 25, 4. And then it says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, us meaning missionaries um, or people in ministry. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. So you basically, you couldn't muscle an ox because they get to eat a little while they plow. And he's like, that's the pastor. That's a missionary. You shouldn't begrudge them to make a living if they give their energy to creating fruitfulness, right? Now, the point here is not to say pastors are an ox, but there's a great talk by Mark Driscoll where he talks, it's called The Ox, Pastoral Ministry. And basically, he's saying, he, he's basically saying what's in keeping with chapter three, right? You know, what kind of animal is a pastor? Well, you know, you're a big dumb cow that just, pulls in a straight line, and needs help doing even that, right? That's, that's the point, right? And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, this is why it's so crazy that you're like, oh, I really like this pastor, and oh, I really like that pastor, and oh, Apollos is so great, and oh, Paul is so good, or whatever we run after. He's saying, you know, that's basically like getting a bunch of t-shirts made with your plumber on them, and running around and taking your identity from who fixes your pipes, and being like, man, I Bill's my plumber, man. He's just, I mean, you can't believe the jeans that guy wears. He just, and he cr- the wrenches. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, it's a little like being like, oh, you should go to High Point Church because 
We, you know, we got the best cow over there talking from the pulpit. I mean, you know, I mean, he just, I mean, he's as ugly as all of them, but boy, I tell you what, he just stands there and chews. I mean, that's, that's essentially what they're saying. I mean, now, that's not to say that you shouldn't respect people in ministry and so on, okay? There are other Bible passages that talk about respect and honor and even pay in, right in the Bible, but they are not in reference to what we are. They are in reference to what we become in our relatedness to Jesus and to the gospel. None of that comes from me. So if you show me, like 1 Timothy chapter 6 says that elders in the church, especially those given to teaching and preaching, should be accorded double honor. Okay, it totally says that. I'm, I'm happy about it. But, but here's the thing. That's not because I deserve it, because of what I am. It's because... Jesus has hopefully given a gift to the church and I'm supposed to live up to and live into that role and associated with that role because Jesus gives it dignity is a certain amount of respect and honor that comes with that. That's why you don't teach your kids to shoot spit wads at me and so on. But that, that has nothing to do with what I am. I'm just a mason, right? I'm just, to put it in my, I'm just a plumber. I'm just a dumb cow who is supposed to be pulling in one direction and I need a little help doing that. And ultimately, it's basically saying that um, that in, on one level, Christian ministry is beneath blue-collar work. That it's, it's, it, it should be on a dirty jobs program if you could see it spiritually. It's not meant to be this pretty little professorial white-collar, you do everything for me and I'll just talk at you sort of thing. That's not really what it is. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how that's realistic in the sense that he was beaten. He talks about his credentials. I was beaten half to death a couple times. I've been shipwrecked. I mean, that's what he saw as his credentials, not his PhD. I mean, that's a different, isn't that a different understanding of leadership? But doesn't that resonate with you? Like, if you had a chance to follow two generals, one guy has been at West Point for 25 years and knows all, and one guy has actually been in combat 60 times. Who, whose platoon do you want to be in? I want to be in that guy's platoon. A hundred times out of a hundred. I'm gonna shoot myself if I'm in that guy's platoon. But that's—but it's so easy for us to listen to people talk. We live in a talking culture. It's so easy to listen to people talk and praise them or not praise them for how they talk. I can't believe—you know what? Let me just, let me, can I just be honest with you for a second? 95% of the people who make a comment to me do not talk about the effect of what I say on their life and how God is using it to produce grace. They say something about how well I talk or that was really funny today, or I love coming to listen to you, or blah, 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 blah. That's what people tell me. And, and I'm glad for that. In fact, and on a certain level, I appreciate the encouragement because it's nice to get a little feedback. But on another level, it's so demoralizing. And it really feeds in all the worst parts of me because what, if, if I'm really doing what Jesus wants me to do, what I'm longing for is for you to say, over the last five months, I just want to tell you, over the last five months, Nick, um, I've been trying to listen to the word of God respoken through whatever you're saying. And I've started looking at my kids and looking at my wife and looking at my life just differently because I feel like I'm seeing the gospel better. And it's changing the way I see everything. And I want you to know that the seed that you're trying to plant in me, I think it's growing a little bit. That, oh my gosh. And if that's not what I'm living for, I gotta get out of this business. If I, if I want 50 people to tell me that I talk well, I should not be here. You should fire me immediately. If, if you tell me that I preach well and I don't look bored, that, there's a problem, okay? It's a problem.
problem. Okay, hopefully that wasn't too direct. Let's just skip ahead to the next part real fast here. And that is a sense of what we are. See, it's, it's really not enough to feel like you know what a leader is supposed to be. The reason why the leader is what they are isn't because just because of who God is. It's, it's a big part of it's that. But part of it is because of you, that you don't know what you are. When we fall into that kind of favoritism and factionalism, when we, when we pick one thing over another, it's not just that we don't know who God is and we don't know who a leader is. We don't know, you don't, we don't know what we are. Because you, if you've believed in Jesus and you, God has done a work of regeneration in your heart and you've come to the gospel, you've done what the Bible calls being born again, being, being changed to, be, to belong to Jesus and to profess faith in him, then you are, the Bible calls you God's treasured possession. And in this passage, it really focuses on us being that together. Now, we are that individually, it's true. But, but in a deeper sense, we are that together. We are God's possession. The passage refers to you and me, us together as believers, as God's field. Now, if, you, if you're a master of a, a lar- very large domain, and you've got fields and you've got workers, at one level, what do you care about more? When one says humanly wise, you want to pay your workers well, whatever. But your heart is invested in the field. What it produces. What it is. Will it grow? It's your land. You don't own the people, but you own the land. And it's, you're looking at what it's going to produce. Your, your destiny is bound up in what happens. It's the thing that's yours. And what God is saying in this passage, what Paul, what Paul is trying to tell them, and therefore the Spirit is trying to tell us is, listen, You are the thing that God cares to plant the the seed of his life into and to cause it to grow and to make it fruitful. And he cares about the field such that if if the field hand doesn't treat it right, he will fire that field hand and get somebody else because the field is staying. There's a number of passages in the Bible that basically say to shepherds, listen, God is perfectly capable of getting a new shepherd. And if, if you don't be the shepherd, like, you're, you can be, you're gone. Because, here's why. Because if somebody's going, it's not the field. It's not the people. It's not, it's the, it's the shepherd. It's the cultivator. And if you don't build, the te- if it's God's temple, right, if it's his building, and it's being built up, and he wants a mason, and the mason comes in and figures he can cut bricks however the heck he wants to, it's, he's not going to stop building the temple. He's going to get rid of the mason. Why? Because he wants the building. He wants the building. It's his. And it doesn't just stop there. It, okay, we'll go back to that. No, we won't. He goes on to say this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Now, that may be old news to you, but it's the first time it's in the New Testament. Saying, it's not, listen, it's not just a building that God is building, that he wants, like some kind of bank or something. It's a, you together are God's temple. It's, it's extremely special to him. He moved nations. There were wars over the dignity of that building. And he's saying, you are that temple. 
And he, and he gets real specific about this. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, meaning if any shepherd comes along and hurts his church, it doesn't say he's going to be okay with that. He says, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do you see one of the reasons why the shepherd or the leader is nothing? It's not just because of what they are. It's because of what you are. And that shouldn't make you that, that like, oh, I'm so great. No, it's, it's the intention of God that you are God's temple, that he cares about you, that he's making you into something, that you, he will not let you go. And if somebody comes in and messes with it, he is going to destroy them. He does not play nice with people who are cutting up his plans and digging up his fields and cutting stones for his temple however they darn well please. He has laid the foundation of the gospel He's called some people to build on it because he will have a temple. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about that metaphor, it's kind of funny because in chapter six, he applies it negatively to us and he says, so basically if you're God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you, should you be going and um, hiring women for things that aren't very Christian? The answer is no, because you're God's temple, right? But right here, he just focuses on what that means positively. And now think about it this way. Um, in the Old Testament temple, was the temple sacred because the priests ministered in it? Or was the work of the priests sacred because the temple was holy and God lived in it? Right? It's the latter, right? The priests didn't make the temple holy. The temple made the priests work holy because it was God's temple and God lived in it. And, and, and so the leader, the Christian leader does not get their dignity even directly from God. The, the, the dignity of Christian leadership is not that God gives me authority and then I put it out on you. No, it comes from God to the church and then he, hopefully, he, he gives the church the gift of hopefully a good plowman, a good ox. Now, but, but here's the key. Here's what you gotta take away. And that is this. None of that will amount to a hill of beans unless you take this away. That what he was arguing is that the Corinthians and, and by proxy probably us to some extent, they had gotten this 100% reversed. Why? It had been five years and they still didn't know what they were, they still didn't know who God was, and they still didn't know what a leader was, and they were Christians. You see the issue here? Growth doesn't just happen. There have to be sufficient conditions, and the sufficient conditions here that he's getting at is pride has to die. Because the distortion in seeing reality that comes from pride will lie to you in such a way that it will, it, will, it will make you a perpetual nurser. It will, it will form in you a very unspiritual spirituality and what you think is godliness will be worldliness. And the Corinthian church was full of that and I would argue that the church today, it's still, we're still, and each of us individually to a certain extent are full of it. And I mean that in a literal sense, not in the colloquial sense. And it's important to recognize that because, you guys are tired, aren't you? Um, it's important to recognize that because if we do not engage in full awe, 
full-scale warfare against pride, for the growth of humility to clarify reality, we will never grow. And we will suffer all the pain of being immature, and we will not have any of the effect of the power of the gospel that could be unleashed through us for the redemption of all peoples. And all of this, all of this section is for that idea. Pride creates infancy, and only humility can create maturity. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that it's pretty clear um, what our first steps have to be in spiritual growth and in faith. And we pray, Father, that you would make us a people that don't feign humility by being all deferential and pretending we're not important. But would you make us a people who are humble because we have a vision of reality, a vision of the world, a vision of the cross that helps us to see you and therefore puts us in our proper place so that there can be a real humility in us, a humility that's very strong and kind and honorable and disciplined and truthful and yet loving and it has all the nuances of the beauty that you meant humanity to have. And we pray, God, that we would be able to see that in the message of the cross, in the message of Christ. And that it would, and that when we see that, we would realize that all the effort we put forward to grow spiritually is useless. But that if we would believe the gospel and grow in humility, that we would find that much of the growth you want us to have would be effortless. Because we can dig all we want, but ultimately... You are the one who causes the growth with very simple conditions that we would believe. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.